Okay, well, it's the Hemang Pulse. It's the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse of all things hematology. And we have three first-timers coming on the Hemang Pulse. Uh, one of them, I'm not sure, is going to play his cards right because he may not get invited again. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Of course, Dr. Evans, who I did my fellowship with, I get a chance to always tease him about this. But uh, folks, this is really exciting. This is work that I have personally been following and reading about, um, and I've been... Uh, genuinely flabbergasted by the effort and the output of what you are about to hear. So I am fortunate to have uh, uh, three um, amazing scientists who actually have led this effort, and we're going to go through everything that uh, led to the uh, output. So we'll start, first of all, by uh, we're going to drop all the formalities and the doctors and all these things. Susan, you, you, you start first by introducing yourself, please. Sure. And thanks for having us today. Um, I am Susan Parsons. I'm an AYA oncologist in Boston and uh, the co-PI of the Holistic Consortium. And my uh, clinical interest is in the treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma among young adults, both during initial treatment as well as managing with them their late effects of therapy. So my interest in this project really arose from my clinical experience with people dealing with the late effects of curative therapy. Thank you very much, Susan, for coming on board. And then uh, Matt? Yeah, I'm uh, Matt Maurer. I'm a statistician and lymphoma researcher at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, I've been really focused on lymphoma outcomes and, and, and clinical research um, I've been working with the folks on the, the, the Molecular Epidemiology Resource, or MER, through our SPORE grant, which then evolved into our Lymphoma Epidemiology of Outcomes, or LEO cohort, and so have been working on large cohorts for the last 20 years, and so was, uh, it, but hadn't done a lot in Hodgkin lymphoma, so I was very excited when Susan and Andy reached out to collaborate on the Holistic Project. And Andy? Jody. Hi, great to see you again. Hard to believe it's been 20 years uh, since the good old days uh, in Chicago with our friends, uh, Steve Rosen, Leo Gordon, Jane Winter, Bill Gratishar, uh, et cetera. But great to be here. Uh, Andy Evans, I'm at the Rutgers Cancer Institute in New Jersey and the RWJ Barnabas Health Oncology Service Line. Hematologist, oncologist. Um, I still see patients a day and a half a week and uh, do a lot of administration nowadays for our health system. But one of my passions is a very shared interest with Susan, Matt, and, and others on research in Hodgkin lymphoma. In particular, how can we do continue to do a better job of really amalgamating large amounts of data so we can really help patients and providers make informed decisions? Yeah, and Andy, Andy is, uh, um, I've, I've known his passion about Hodgkin lymphoma since we were actually fellows together. He's, he's being very uh, humble, not mentioning a lot of his accomplishments in this. One of the things that he that you've done is actually a, a prospective study that I believe, uh, you know, provided a new option for patients with elderly Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, on a personal level, I've been always fascinated by big data. And I think, you know, part of what you guys have done looked at big data, applying big data on science. So I just want to start from the beginning. Before you guys called Matt, Susan, Andy, how did this all start? Like what what happened? You just 
sitting there bored at some ash meeting and said let's just do this like t- t- take me through how did this even idea of this holistic consortium came up and and where in the world did you come up with this name i, I can give you a little ahead, bit of, yeah please yeah i'll give you a little bit of my perspective and then andy can um add his but i think part of it came from um really initial discussions about um, the clinic program that I lead um, at Tufts in AYA Oncology and where we were seeing increasing numbers of patients um, who were survivors of Hodgkin lymphoma treated in the 80s, 90s, 2000, all the way through to the current day. And the magnitude of their uh, accumulated health problems just was incredibly daunting. And I think there wasn't any good uh, central repository to say this particular patient would be at greater risk for this type of of late effects. Uh, We had in pediatric oncology, very clear guidelines through the children's oncology group about how to monitor certain end organ toxicity. But none of that uh, guidance existed for uh, young adults or for older adults. And yet we knew and we were seeing clinically that late effects emerging. And that was part of it. I think the other part was I have been fascinated with model development since I was um, in, in undergraduate school and then through graduate school. And Uh, Many of my clinical mentors have joked with me over the years that my mantra is really, you can model anything. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to model the disease course or the life course for patients with Hodgkin lymphoma? And so Andy and I met in his office for hours and hours with many pieces of blank printer paper and sketched out what we thought this could look like. And Andy, I'm going to hand it over to you for you to continue reminiscing. When was that, yeah. Andy? What year? Yeah, 18, so that, that, 18, I think we officially announced it in 18. I think we had our blue sky discussion. Yeah, I think our first conversations were in 2015. Yeah, 2015, 2016 in a dark conference room. No, it was it wasn't by candle. You, you were you were at Tufts at the time, Andy, right? I was at Tufts. So Susan and I were co-localized. I was there five years. And and Susan mentioned it, Tufts really has this expertise in decision-making modeling. Chadi, they even, believe it or not, have a division under internal medicine of decision-making. And I had not learned a lot about it. It's been used much more in cardiology and non-cancer, but it is it is taking big data, not meta-analysis, but taking the individual granular patient data and all factors with it, um, lab values, et cetera, and, and not necessarily telling somebody you should receive this, but saying of options A, B, or C on a treatment, here's what based on thousands, if not tens of thousands of other examples, uh, are the likely outcomes at one year, at five year, at 20 years. And oh, by the way, uh, can you layer in quality of life, cost of care? And you know, nothing like that really exists in lymphoma. And I hearken back, you know, Chadi, you know, probably know this more, Um, from the early days of the breast cancer score, where they at least had a little bit of a score to say who may or may not benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. Nothing like that exists in lymphoma. You know, we have obviously 
NCCN, which are lists of, of options, but based on big picture, semi-dogmatic recommendations. And so I still have the name of the folder, Susan. It's called uh, Hodgkin Big Idea. And I save that folder and I keep that master. For, it's called Big Idea because it was, could we amalgamate? God but where, where were you, like where, with Tufts, when you talk about the data that uh, Tufts has in decision-making, where do they get the data from? Well, that's the hard work. And that, that's where it depends on the project. And in this case, the big idea was, can we combine the world's data? And, and when we say world's data, massive, you know, pivotal landmark clinical trials published in a New England journal, like the, I'll use the acronyms folks may know, the RAPID study, the RATHL study, ERTC-H10, um, and others. But we didn't want to stop there. We said, that's great. And as you know, Chadi, clinical trials are great at that initial few years. They can get drugs approved. Where they're not great is that follow-up. And with most of these patients being young, we said, young, can we said, can we concurrently also obtain large prospective cancer registry cohorts that are enriched with follow-up 10, 20 years? And, and so the world, I can say it was around 2018, we, we you know, launched the acronym and the consortium. But the hard work then started of completing all the data use agreements that Susan uh, painstakingly did over several, several years and really all through the pandemic. And then two, once each agreement was done, then you have to literally harmonize the data because every data came in a different form. And, you know, where's the decimal point on the albumin? You needed to normalize, harmonize, standardize ethnicity, lab values. And so we had a data dictionary and common data model that it all fit into, whether it was clinical trial or registries. And just to name a few of the registries, what I mean, these are really bona fide prospective registries from BC Cancer, from Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto, from the country of Australia, uh, Mayo, Iowa, Spore, and Stanford University. And again, amalgamating all of this data so we can study morbidity and mortality over a patient's life continuum. So the plan was to look at all of this data that's published on Hodgkin lymphoma across the world and reach out to all of these people and say, can you give us individual level patient data? Yeah, it's called IPB, IPD, individual patient data. And Matt, did you think that this, I mean, when did you get the call and you said, these four, these people are crazy, they can't, how, <laughs> how can they do this? I mean, Susan's team has done just a phenomenal job because I, I think they're underselling the difficulty of just navigating from the legal side, getting all the data usage. First, Well, first you have to get agreement from everyone in the room to collaborate. Then you have to work with the lawyers and the contracts folks to actually get the data. And then you have to assemble the data. And so um, Susan and her team at Tufts have just done a phenomenal job with this. So from my standpoint, you know, I do a lot of that from our Leo cohort and the MER. Um, I didn't have to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting on the data now, data setup side. I get to just be a statistician, which is a blast. Susan, how tough was this? I mean, honestly, I, I, I mean, I just listening to this, this is very difficult. You're going to call people from Europe, from the U.S., from Australia, and you're going to say, you want to collaborate with us. There's, I mean, I think everybody wants to collaborate, but there, you know, that you've got lawyers, agreements, then people might say, you know, who's going to be the first author on this paper, the academic aspect of things, right? You know, who's going to run this? I'm going to be senior author, going to present this, you know, the other aspect of the academic uh, uh, things that people are sensitive about. 
Yeah, I think there were several levels that uh, seemed logical in retrospect, but took me by surprise in the in the in real in real time. And that is the extent to which this requires really serious relationship building, so that people trust you. They they trust you in. Uh, having the integrity to handle their data respectfully, that you have the methodological bandwidth and capability to do something meaningful with it, and that we have the right people at the table. And then I think the other piece that, that you just mentioned is that there are rules of engagement through a charter that we drafted and revised with input from everyone um, that really said, this is how we're going to handle publications. This is how we're going to handle data sharing. And uh, I think that to me was also very instructive. I remember when we were at the uh, International um, Hodgkin's uh, Conference in Cologne, in a, one of the basement meetings, uh, basement meeting rooms, where we actually talked about really hammering out uh, how do we do things like uh, writing a paper and deciding what data to be included and what data not to be included. And um, so a lot of relationship building. I think the other thing is that when you talk to data scientists, the ideas about data standardization and all seem very um, straightforward. And the reality is data are really messy. And I was amazed at how many hours I spent just converting from one unit to another so that all of our albumin data, for example, was in the same units or um, getting case report forms from trial after trial and realizing that this one was in French and this one was in Italian and this one was in Spanish or Portuguese. And you know, really sort of taking my entire liberal arts education and applying it to these But, but Susan, did you have like a computer program? Everything. Like the data comes in, did you have a computer program? You just enter this, right? I mean, you had a computer program. You were, you were not be, doing this. It anymore. had to be cleaned first. I mean, right, Susan? I mean, so you had to do all this work, but ultimately it was synthesized into, into a master database, yes. And so initially it would, it would come in like a, probably an Excel spreadsheet and then you just get all of this. You have to spend hours doing the harmonized data and then, and then yeah. you enter that into the computer. Right. Exactly. Oh and oh, by the way, Chadi, you're right. There are a lot of sensitivities in this. And, and thankfully, I, I give a lot of the credit, I mean, obviously to Susan and Matt, and I want to give a shout out to Angie Rade, who is a lead statistician at, at Tufts, who's done Yeoman's work to the, all the Hodgkin's leaders in the world, because they recognize this and they rallied, you know, the Jonathan Friedbergs, the Peter Johnsons, the Massimo Federicos, the John Radfords, uh, the Germans are, are now involved. I mean, they really pushed locally because you need that local push and, and uh, shared passion to make this happen. Right. So, 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 um, um, Matt, before we get into some of the, you know, what's the data is and, and where things are, from a statistical perspective, um, 
you know, I mean, how is this difficult and easy thing? I mean, I, I mean, you have all of this data coming from various sources. Are you concerned how, like, how do you look at this statistically when you get the information or what this was? Well, I guess, what were the challenges mm -hmm. that you were worried about? Well, I think first we need to talk about the strengths, right? So if you want to do modeling work and you want it to be applicable to as many patients as possible and to be accurate in the models that you develop, having big data sets isn't crucial as having diverse data sets. So this isn't just a series of patients at a, in one institution or three institutions across the U.S. This is really a global initiative. Uh, and so... The goal, and what we've I think we've seen in projects we've done like this, is then the finished product that you get. All the work that goes into it is tremendous, but at the end of the day, um, you have enough uh, sample size to to model things well, and then the models should be broadly applicable to as many patients as possible because it comes from such uh, a diverse set of patients that the things that you see are seeing are should be broadly universal or should. Um, uh, the model should work in as, as big of a uh, patient population as, as possible. So Andy, it took a couple of years to get enough uh, data uh, out there. When did you feel you had enough information where you can actually get some reasonable output that would help clinicians? Yeah, pro again, that, that data cleaning harmonization was, was from 2018 through about 2021, literally a couple of years. And then we realized at that time uh, we had around in the database, believe it or not, this is two years ago, around 15,000 cases. And that 15,000 constituted about 10,000 from clinical trials. And this is, again, individual patient data and about 5,000 from registries. And we had maybe more clean data, I would say, on the advanced stage. And so that's where we we started there. We we. It was really tough, Chadi, on the early stage, which we presented a, a version one at ASH because it was so granular. It's down to the where are the exact nodal sites and sizes in the body. We're that granular, and and again, I give all the we give all the uh, credit to the local investigators who were able to do that. So that's what led to the to the initial. We had an oral presentation at last year's ASH, and it was a contemporaneous JCO. But I can tell you that model building. Um, took about seven months. We started, you know, our lives are ruled around Ash's August deadline. So we started uh, right around January, February, and we had a monthly big group meeting and a uh, every other week core modeling meeting where the model just kept getting stronger, stronger and doing all the different validations. And you had to develop the model, validate the model. And, and that's where we started with advanced stage. Um, as of today, we have 18,000. Uh, and it is a you build it, they come. Uh, we have another waiting to come, believe it or not, 6,000 cases. The Danish have a large registry. Uh, we even have colleagues now, Chadi, in South America from Chile and Brazil, because we don't want this to be a Western, you know, European, uh, uh, U.S. model. We want it to be global. And we know cancer care is different. Uh, not everyone has access to checkpoint inhibitors and brentuximabidotin and other targeted agents. So when we say global and and apply to all, we we really mean it. And thankfully, we're we're going to be able to do that. So Susan, maybe share with listeners and, and viewers a little bit of the findings so far that you've been able to report for at Ash and publications. But before we do this, I'm I'm a little bit curious. I I appreciate the 
global nature of the project. It's really important. At the same time, part of me is thinking, how do you factor in the geographic uh, differences? I mean, there are certain aspects uh, with Hodgkin. Uh, the treatment is one of them. Uh, potentially, I don't know, environmental factors, other occupational aspects. There's certain elements. Do you factor this in the model where you really, you know, somebody who is in the U.S., that model applies for, but somebody who is in LATAM may not apply for? So two portions of the question. First, maybe share what we know so far today and and two how do you factor these differences between various continents and different countries yeah that's a great question and and i think one of the more interesting aspects of of the global nature of the database that um there definitely are differences there are big differences for example in um in the Brazilian registry in terms of um, treatment-related mortality due to on-treatment infection, for example, or different rates of background rates of HIV in the population that we may not see to the same extent in the current era in some of our Western, uh, more Westernized uh, cohorts. Um, I think that the first thing that we really focused on was the quality of the data, um, the quality of the data collection, the completeness of the data, and making sure there weren't any data collection activities that would potentially bias the findings. So the Brazilian registry is a very interesting example of a prospective data collection across, I think, 13 or more um, public hospitals. And they're very careful about curating all the data, including all of the patients, so that it would limit, eliminate some of the potential bias. Um, that's one thing that we did. I think the other thing that we did is we wanted to make sure that the data were complete and usable. And um, Angie, our statistician, was she's just so meticulous about every single data field that, you know, there were certain instances where we got data and the majority of the data fields were missing and we did not use them in some of our model building. So there's, you know, I guess if the first principle I, I wanted to make was relationship building, the other was quality and that we really, really focused on uh, the adjudication of every single data cell. And if we had questions, we went back to the source data, to the PIs of the you know, owners of the data and had them go back to the records and double check things for us. And, and I think one of the great things about this collaboration is people were willing to do that and really um, complete missing data. They were willing to clarify data they were willing to change units of expression uh, so yeah so but what did we find out like what what do we like andy maybe share with us maybe a little, yeah. yeah yeah so we and i should also mention we you can only do so much of this on blood sweat and tears um thankfully we did garner an nih grant for this uh chadi 
it's uh, it's an R01. We're in our second year of a four million dollar R01 uh, that that Susan and I are multi PI, but it has thirty co investigators, and, and so that funding is critical. And the way the grant was set up, we're we're really following the aims as a roadmap. So aim one, we're finishing aim one now, where we said based on baseline um, pre treatment factors, tumor factors, patient factors, let's have a predictive model for advanced stage and early stage. And by the way, uh, you know, and this is maybe a Predict, Predictive of what? So predictive of progression-free survival and overall survival over five years, based on 25 plus different granular characteristics. But what's critical about that, Chadi, is we really went in A, unbiased, and B, detailed. Meaning my personal bias is, I think our models in lymphoma and maybe cancer are often too simplified. Like we want a, like the IPI is a good example. It's been around 25 years, but I can separate into a high risk, low risk group, so-called discrimination. But we can't, if I saw a patient today say, well, your IPI five, you should receive this or your IPI zero. The problem with our models, when you, I think a big issue is when you dichotomize values, age is a perfect example, over 60, greater than 60. That's not very granular. You know, as you well know, the outcomes is probably very different, if not maybe just a little different, whether you're 20, 35, 59, 65. And so everything we did is on a continuous variable. So the bad news is you can't do it on your hand. Yes, you need a computer to quickly score it, but it gives you so much more statistical power, number one, because when you dichotomize, you lose power. So you get a lot more statistical power. And two, you don't assume linearity. Because when you dichotomize, Chadi, you know, you assume it's perfectly linear, whereas age for us, it was like in an M-shaped. It was different waveform. And so when and one way to get a sense at that is called calibration. And, and a lot of our models, some have done good calibration, some haven't. And so we have that for advanced stage. We're perfecting it for early stage. And then we can talk about uh, future steps when you want. Matt, is this is this really a predictive model or prognostic model? Help listeners understand the difference because um, as I'm listening to Andy, I have a model that tells me who would live longer versus shorter, mm -hmm. progress faster versus later. Uh, help us understand uh, predictive versus prognostic. Yeah, so so we're still in the realm of prognostic models here where they would be applied to any patient at diagnosis and it would give you a likelihood of of achieving five years of progression-free survival or five years of overall survival. Um, so that's kind of treatment, you know, treatment naive. Where we'd like to go, and I think where we'll get there in, in future iterations of uh, in AIMS and work that we'll do with this data, because we'll have the sample size and the granularity to do it, is try to understand which therapies might be selected for an individual patient based on their risk. So can we identify, here's a group of patients that should get this therapy versus patients that would be better served with, with a different therapy. And that's where you get to predictive models where you could say, based on the variables, um, we know that this therapy is not going to work well for you, but this one might. So, so today we do have this prognostic model for advanced stage disease um, so, Susan, we have that, and we're working on early stage disease. Um, Susan, one of the things that are very, very important for Hodgkin lymphoma, and again, you all are experts here, but we all know that we cure, hopefully, 
a lot of patients, the majority of patients. It's one of those things where lymphoma specialists are unhappy to see when a white patient walks through their room, but you know they're happy because they feel they can help more. The problem is, as you mentioned earlier, is the long-term morbidity. With the data set that you have, do you have enough long-term follow-up to indeed be able to make a, a proper assessment of that long-term morbidity and survivorship, if you will? Because these clinical trials, oftentimes, you know, after three, four years, they stop really following up for various reasons. So how can we answer that question for the long-term survivorship? Another great question and, and really at the crux of what we're doing. By integrating registries, we have longer follow-up and some information about emerging late effects. Uh, I think the other realization that Andy and I have discussed extensively is that some of the more recent epidemiologic models suggest that late effects actually begin to emerge as early as three to five years after diagnosis. So that, you know, when, when I sort of finished my clinical training, I thought about late effects, something I had to think about 20 years down the road. And, and the latest models suggest that that's false, that the actual risks of emerging late effects begin within that first five years after treatment. And so how we manage those patients is critical. I think that's one issue. I think in terms of having adequate longer term data on things like second cancers or um, worsening cardiopulmonary disease or whatever it might be, uh, we've relied on knitting our data with other population registries and other um, even potentially healthcare utilization where we can get information at a population level of certain risk factors and emerging heart disease or emerging um, other, other important late effects. So it's not from a single source, but this knitting together of, of all these other types of data. Uh, we've also just talked and read <laughs> so many people about, you know, how did you do it? How did you handle it? And, and then the last thing that we did is we've applied novel methods. Um, and uh, one of the methods that our colleagues at St. Jude and, and we have used together is simulation modeling, where we don't have, we don't have future knowledge. We don't have you know, complete information about what's going to happen to an individual person in 30 years, but we can simulate that, meaning we can run the, the events or the likelihood of the events in the computer, and we can do iterations and change assumptions and see what happens. I see how the uh, overall estimates change right. as our assumptions change. Andy, um, and I, I, I don't want to be very sensitive of your times, but um, um, you started this idea, you and Susan, in 2015. You started this in 2018. Uh, needless to say, all of us know that uh, uh, Hodgkin lymphoma's treatment actually has changed <laughs> over the past five years uh, to the better for patients and, and, and all of this. How does your model account for ongoing studies 
where the results of these trials could emerge while you're still really collecting this? Because again, probably most of the patients you've collected received ABVD, AVD, and now potentially a lot of folks are getting AAVD and potentially again, NEVO-AVD and things of that nature. Do you build that in or do you change things where the model remains contemporary? Yeah, Chadi, you're asking all the great questions and we didn't ask you, I don't know, these are actually on points. And so that's another critical component. And thankfully we can answer it in a couple of ways. Number one, the way Susan and her team have built the database, it's much easier now, you know, it's see one, do one, teach one. It's the data comes in, there still is work to do, but it's very dynamic. It's living and breathing. And so we're like, all, I can't say on a monthly basis, but but on a quarterly basis, whether it's a new registry, a new study is coming into the system in general, big picture. But to your point, more granular, yes, that's critical. Now, should a model, a predictive model be robust irrespective of therapy? Yes, it should. But of course, we want to build it in a next step um, called multi-state modeling on different ways, different treatments. What if a PET scan's positive, negative? And obviously we need novel therapy. So again, we have thankful, great collaboration. And so the one thing we're fortunate with, I'll say, is most Hodgkin lymphoma studies, pivotal studies, um, were not done by big pharma because there are more difficulties, you know, with pharmaceutical companies sharing individual patient data. And so that is maybe one advantage we have in Hodgkin lymphoma that most of the pivotal studies were university or country studies. But yes, as new studies get developed, we want to incorporate it. And just one other point, um, one other blind spot, because you start an idea and there's always blind spots or gaps, is what about relapse refractory? Especially if we want the full care continuum, that's a different survivorship if you're relapsed or never relapsed. And we have another burgeoning collaboration with uh, Marie-Jose Kristan in the Netherlands, Alex Herrera, Alison Moskowitz. They have a collection of almost 3,000 relapse refractory Hodgkins, the majority of which have received novel therapeutic agents. So that's going to be incorporated. It'll help novel agents from that standpoint, as you mentioned, it'll help in relapse refractory. And then as new studies happen, like 1826, obviously it needs to be published first, but the hope is that at when the time is right, we'll come into the data set and fill it out. Um, look, I mean, I, I, I'm just fascinated by this. When I first saw the publication uh, in JCO, I just, uh, you know, I, I could totally tell the effort. I actually thought uh, um, should have been even uh, potentially in any JM submission I, for somebody who really understands the magnitude of this. But um, um Matt, why can't we do this for other diseases? I mean, I can think of, goodness, uh, a host of diseases where we could benefit, you know, elderly, DLBCL. Uh, I would love to know uh, some something like this. You know, there's so many of these challenging diseases where we can do better job with big data. Um, do you think we can take this and try to look at various lymphoid malignancies and potentially some leukemias? I mean, this is a great effort that we should duplicate. It, it is. Um, but I think you've heard on this call just the challenges with it. It requires um, great leadership. It requires um, stakeholders in the field to really come together and work on this. I mean, this is really a, an example of team science at its finest, where you need an incredibly broad set of skill sets to really make this happen and people to agree. And it needs funding, right? And so I think those are the challenges. And these aren't necessarily the projects 
that uh, you know um, funding agencies get excited about, right? Because it's a lot of work for infrastructure to build this together before you can start doing really, really good science out of it. But you need this type of work to really do this level of science. Where do we go from here? What are the next steps, uh, guys? Like, what I mean, I presume we're going to see a lot of you at every Ash and every Asco, but. Uh, uh, what 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 are you? Uh, we talked about advanced stage disease. Uh, hopefully, we'll move from prognostic to predictive. Uh, what are the I guess next? Uh, what are the next aims? Uh, can you share some of the aims in the in the grant or something like that? Yeah, it's it's Susan uh, and Matt alluded to it, and and actually you did too, Chadi. What a second step is now we want to integrate. If you receive different treatments, if your PET scan result is positive or negative, how does that change the prediction? is step two. And then step three is the, the what we're calling post-acute, meaning years one to 10, or late effects beyond years 10 to start to estimate and simulate that. But the beauty of this, Chadi, is that other ideas that you didn't think of spring up, like relapse refractory. Another gap, and you mentioned it, are older patients, uh, like the Italians have done for diffuse large B cell, that doesn't exist. And so at ASH, there's a lot of enthusiasm to do a prospective observational study of a couple thousand for older patients. We want to look at that. And then down the road, uh, the sky's the limit. You know, not only does it build and breathe, but what about integrating cost of care? What about quality of life? What about patient preference? So many aspects that can be layered onto it. Susan, any questions I should have asked about this this project that I completely overlooked or forgot that you'd like to share with uh, with folks? I, I would just like to call out the, a comment that Matt made about having broad stakeholder engagement. Um, we have had uh, representatives from all the major lymphoma foundations worldwide participate in this study um, as members of the consortium and. I think it will it already has and will continue to help us address Andy's comment about making sure that our models are reflecting outcomes that are important to patients. Um, we care about five-year survival or overall survival, but there may be other outcomes that are as critical to the, the patient community. Um, and I think using our stakeholders to help us access those patients will be really important for our long-term success. Um, I, I just think that's a really important point. Yeah. Matt, anything I should have uh, asked I forgot? No, I mean, I think it's there's so much great work going on here. I mean, it's it's I'm excited to learn from Susan and her team with the multi-state modeling and see kind of the how that work gets done. And it's been great to work on the uh, the prognostic modeling, you know, something maybe the baseline stuff that I'm more familiar with. But I think the team that's been assembled by Susan and Andy is just phenomenal. And everyone has just been wonderful to work with. And I think that's, again, an, another unique aspect of this consortium that will make it successful moving forward. Andy, anything I forgot uh, you'd like no, to mention? You, you really touched all the bases, and, and it comes down to collaboration, trust, and being open-minded. And we're just so thankful for all of our colleagues and collaborators uh, literally around the world for engaging in this. It's It's been fun, and we look forward to more and more to come. 
Well, before you go, I have to know, like, uh, how long did it take until you agreed on the name Holistic? That, how many uh, beverages late at night? How many beverages, I, like, and discussions? I don't, I don't know why, but I have a weird um, thing about I love acronyms and play writing it out. And I didn't use chat, chat GPT. So, I, and of course, I sent them all to Susan and she picked the best one. Uh, did you have to ask other folks? I, we kept that one pretty close to the vest. Um, that yeah. was well. Look, uh, congratulations! Um, this is really amazing work. Uh, it does take uh, it takes a village, and um, I, I think I hope that listeners understand the magnitude of this work, the effort that's being done, and everybody will be looking forward to additional output from this uh, effort that you guys are doing. Um, Andy Evans, Susan Parsons, and Matt Maurer on the Hemant Pulse. Thank you. <laughs>